Welcome to The Emily Osmond Show. I'm your host, Emily Osmond, an online marketing educator, leader of an incredible global community of female entrepreneurs and a content creator based in Melbourne, Australia. This show is designed to bring you practical strategies and candid real stories of entrepreneurs to help you make marketing, mindset and money your superpowers. Let's get into the show. Welcome back to the show. Today's guest is Alisa Messenger, the vibrant, game-changing founder and CEO of Collective Hub. She's an international speaker, best-selling author, and an authority on all things disruption. Lisa launched Collective Hub as a print magazine back in 2013. She had no experience in the industry, and it was one that people said was either dead or dying. But within 18 months, that print mag was in 37 countries. Wind forward five years and 54 issues into the print magazine, and Lisa made the courageous move to break the very thing that she started to actually allow her to pivot into something far more sustainable and vast reaching. Collective Hub has since grown into an international multimedia business and lifestyle platform with multiple verticals across print, digital events and education, all of which really serve to ignite human potential. Lisa, can you believe it? She's actually authored or co-authored 28 books. And in more recent years, these have been real-time, very raw and candid documentation of her life and business in real time as it unfolded. So make sure you get your hands on those. Some of those are daring and disruptive, uh, money and mindfulness, and risk and resilience. So Lisa's books and her magazines have been pivotal to me First of all, all those years ago in actually realizing that there was a thing called entrepreneurship and also thanks to Lisa in living her life out loud in realizing you don't have to have it all figured out to actually give it a go. In this episode, I chat with Lisa about actually having a business initially that she couldn't scale the incredible growth of Collective Hub and what she actually puts down to its success, what it then felt like when she realized it wasn't working, she was hemorrhaging $100,000 a day and she realized it was time she had to actually let go of her staff, her big office and the print magazine itself to make sure that Collective Hub survived. We also discuss ego, mental health and what she wants to be remembered for when she's gone. Collectivehub.com is the best place to go to find Lisa's books and masterclasses and brilliant articles. And you'll find Lisa on Instagram at Lisa Messenger. Also, Lisa's just launched a podcast. So search Hear Me Raw, which is R-A-W, on your favorite podcast app to tune into that one. By the way, if you love this episode, if you could take a screenshot and tag Lisa and myself on Instagram. So I'm at Emily Osmond. We would love to see now. Enjoy this episode. So Lisa, welcome to the show. Thank you. It is beautiful to be here. And for those who aren't visually viewing this, I am so excited to see all my magazines and books behind you. Thank you. <laughs> Even <Yep>. issue one. <laughs> right from the start, I was um 
I was still working in a job and I was living in Ballarat, I'm in Melbourne now, and I remember seeing the magazine at the supermarket newsstand and I'm like, what is this magazine? This cover is very different. And I started like reading inside it. I'm like, what the hell? This is so like the way it's put together and the story. So I was absolutely hooked from day one. And you gave me, you, you kind of introduced me to the idea of entrepreneurship because I didn't really know that it existed. So I have a lot to thank you for, Lisa. Oh, thank you. And it's beautiful to be actually connected here on your podcast because I know you've been a big follower and we've connected a lot over Instagram. And so it's nice to kind of almost be. That's right. That's right. (laughs) Well, Lisa, I, I love to start off with asking, what are you listening to or watching or reading right now? I'd love to hear. Well, it's a funny thing because this year I'm putting out like 37 print products <laughs> and um, just a few and I just launched my own podcast, Hear Me Raw. So I'm like, at the moment, I'm a lot about output and not so much consumption of reading type. However, I do watch like a lot of documentaries nerding out. So <laughs> I love anything biographical. So recently I've watched Becoming with Michelle Obama, which was just amazing. I'm trying to think. Have you read her book? I loved her book. Now, here's the thing. Because I write so many books, I have a confession to make. I very rarely read a book cover to cover. Like I'm always dipping in and out of I mean, I think she is one of the most phenomenal women. Um, But for me, I kind of... What's my ritual? Okay, so I listen to a lot of podcasts. So in the mornings, and we can get into my rituals and routine, but in the mornings, I try and listen to a podcast. So I've been listening a lot to my good friend, our mutual friend, Sarah Davidson, her sees the yay, of which I was her first guest, but I think she does such a beautiful job. Another girlfriend of mine, Samantha Gash, has recently launched one. So I try and listen to friends' podcasts and support them as well. And yeah, I listen to a lot of that. On the weekends, I always read old school still. So I always read the Fin Review. I read the Australian in physical hard paper format. I read the New York Times. And um, because I feel like during the week, you know, we're just, I am consuming so much online you know um there's so much coming into our inboxes and I'm kind of like I synthesize a lot of stuff and I dip in and out of a lot of stuff so on the weekend I'm like I purposely sit in the sun with my dog Benny and my fiance and I physically read the papers yeah but docos I'm just trying to think I love anything um like Gaga five foot two I've watched again recently Bikram I was surprised like you know very controversial I think a lot of Bikram yoga studios are now calling themselves hot yoga as a result of that I'm fascinated all the time by human psychology so I love anything kind of biographical and sometimes because I'm writing so much and consuming so much media in short form I love to just sit down and watch a you know long documentary about someone's life it feels like such a luxury I think too just to be able to sit down and kind of let it all in it's awesome yeah and and just on that there's a pro and a con to that being like an a-type overachiever it's like Sometimes I'm like, oh, I feel guilty if I just watched Mindless Trash. Mind you, I did watch something on Stan recently called Younger and I just love it. Other guests have told me about that on the podcast, yeah. Liza, she's like 40-something pretending to be 26 and working in publishing and it's just like kind of this delicious, you kind of morph into her life and just be like, oh, this is so beautiful. So sometimes it's good to allow ourselves to have mindless stuff, I think. (laughs) 
I know what you mean. I often, if I'm watching TV, I have to be doing something else at the same time, which is good and bad. Anyway, Lisa, tell us how you got started as an entrepreneur. Was it something that you've just done from day dot or is it something that you just had a calling to start like delving into? What did it look like for you getting your start? So I always think it's good to like look backwards, backwards, because often it only makes sense in hindsight. Do you know what I mean? So I can probably go back to when I was eight and I I found um, this notebook that I'd written in and it was something like, you know, I, I want to change the world. I want to do, it was like quite bizarre. And I was like, whoa, where did that come from? Because I was living on a four and a half thousand acre property, about seven and a half hours drive from Sydney. It was before technology. And I'm like, wow, where does that even come from? You know, like, I mean, obviously I had no emotional intelligence or understanding behind that, but I'm like, something must have sparked in me. And then at school, I was always, always pretty much every lesson thrown out of the lesson. And um, I was annoying because this education system was very convergent as opposed to divergent so because I bucked the status quo at school and I was like but that doesn't make sense explain that or but how but why you know blah 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 and so that resulted in me always being in trouble because I questioned the system and I questioned the teachings right but again no understanding of what that was just a pain in the ass child without any real direction so that's interesting when you look back and you go oh okay yeah can I ask Lisa did you have like a belief because I think I just for some reason had a belief growing up that I was gonna do something you know different and I just had this feeling I probably went to like one of the most prestigious wealthy schools but was the poorest kid in the school if that makes sense <laughs> so I grew up with a lot of people with a lot of wealth and we didn't have much in fact my mum used to put notes above the toilet paper saying only take three sheets and like, <laughs> she says it was for environmental reasons but I mean we were very money conscious I'm very grateful to have been sent to a you know the most expensive school I don't know how my parents afforded it really, but I did have this thing. I know when I, in year 10, I was at boarding school because I kind of got thrown out of home in year nine, (laughs) even though we only lived like a couple of kilometers away. And I went to boarding school. My sister remained a day girl and used to come to school every day and I would like live at the school. But I remember year 10, I got back to school and I didn't unpack my bag. And I remember I spent most of my life in the headmistress's office being in trouble. And this time I was sent there, I think, because I hadn't, um, because I refused to unpack my bag. And she was like, why? And I was like, I am going to change. Like, I, I'm sure I didn't use the words change the world, but I had, I remember deeply having this yearning of, ah, oh, this school thing's just too hard. So my point about being the not so wealthy family was that so many people around me used to go on holidays all the time to America and they'd bring me back like bubble gum and I'd be like, wow, this is like the most amazing thing because I'd never seen things like this, right? Or they'd go to Bali or like it was so glamorous and I'd never been anywhere and I'm so grateful for that now. Like I'm so grateful because I just had this yearning to be like, I want to go to one of these far-flung places so I'm not going to unpack my bag. So I think sometimes not having all the things but sometimes being surrounded by things maybe was aspirational back then and I was like I'm gonna do this so I did stay 
until year 12. But the very first opportunity I got, I got accepted onto something called the Gap Scheme. I'm not sure if it's around anymore. And so I went to the UK and I remember my mum saying, you know, I'll give you some money. And I said, no, I do not want anything. And so she literally turned up to the airport with a box of throat lozenges because I'd been partying so hard the night before. And that was all she gave me for two years. <laughs> and and the amazing thing about that was it was the first time I'd been on a plane overseas. I went and worked in Shrewsbury, Shropshire, on the border of Wales and England as a horse riding instructor. But I was so in awe of, oh my gosh, these mountains, this thing. And I'm so grateful now. So to anyone listening, I would say just don't ever think what other people have is better. Like your time will come. And actually, it's so beautiful because now sometimes when I travel, I've got to be much more conscious about it because when we're not in COVID, I'm on a plane at least once a week and I get to see a lot of the world now. And I try not to be desensitized. I try and stop and go, wow, imagine I was that 18-year-old kid who'd never seen the world again. Look at it through those eyes. How would I be feeling now? Like I really try because I think the more we experience things, the more we're like, oh, yeah, that thing again. So, so I'm very grateful. So that was kind of, I guess, my to answer your question, my entrepreneurial journey, I always wanted more. I just didn't know what that was until many many years later and then I started my first business 22nd of October 2001 so what's that 19 years ago almost 19 years ago yeah that was your publishing business is that right I started something called messenger marketing so I started an integrated I'm doing bunny years integrated marketing <laughs> agency because I really I had no real experience I mean I'd I'd worked in sponsorship for someone else working for Cirque du Soleil and the Wiggles and Barry Humphreys I'd worked in conference and event management my time working in sponsorship which was my last actual job employed by anyone I was only there about eight months but that was what really taught me I think about thinking differently and having to think about, okay, if a corporate's going to give us money to sponsor something, what's the value exchange? Like, what are we offering? And that was one of the most extraordinary learnings of my life. And I'm very grateful to my then boss, um, Adam Jeffrey, who almost fired me. He pretty much fired me. <laughs> but in the most beautiful way, and if he ever listens to this, thank you, Adam, because I was always also asking, but how, can't we do it a different way? Like I was actually a pain in the ass employee. I was very good. I was very, very good, but I was also painful. And I used to say to him, I want equity. I didn't know what equity meant at the time, but I was like, it sounds so cool. And that was my ego. And I just think in the end, he was like, oh, why don't you just go and do your own thing? And that was amazing. And, you know, I left that job in earlier in 2001. I remember I had, I think, $4,000 to my name. And that was beautiful because I went from like, I think a 60 or $65,000 salary with $4,000 to my name. And I just jumped, right? And I was like, yes, I'm going to do my own thing. And then I did a six-week free business course that I found and um, wrote a business plan and then for the next 11 years proceeded to overcharge be everything to everyone well documented I was a slow learner but yeah and then 2013 it just well everything changed <laughs> when you were in that period of undercharging over delivering why do you think 
that was. And what kept you there for quite a few years, I guess, as well? Many things, and this is a journey many entrepreneurs or startups will relate to, is that I think when you start anything, you're so full of passion and excitement. I mean, I just couldn't believe that I had my own business. And even though I had a desk that someone had given me that only had one leg and the rest of it was like, on telephone books that we used to have I was just so freaking excited right so what happened for me and this happens for a lot of people is I didn't know about systems and processes or scale or duplicating services so what happens is say you would come to me it would be like Emily's like can you help me with a business plan and I'd be like amazing someone asked me so I would work my butt off trying to figure out how to write the most amazing business plan for Emily. And then someone else would come to me and go, you've been working in sponsorship. Can you help me get sponsors for something? Or, you know, so so I had no business model at all. My business was called Messenger Marketing, but I didn't know what it did. I hadn't delineated these are my services, these are my products, this is how I'll charge, this, this is what my time is worth. And in fact, because it was only me, this is another mistake a lot of people make. I was swapping time for money. So there's only ever going to be a ceiling on what I can earn because even if I manage to charge someone $1,000 to write a business plan, it's probably taken me six weeks to do. Like, So the clever thing is that you go, I'll write a business plan for Emily once, I'll work out how to do that, and now I'll sell that a hundred times and the person's paying for my intellectual property and what and my learnings and you know it might take me a lot less time but actually the value is still there so it took me a long time to learn that and I also didn't have any mentors I didn't really know that existed I mean you said that your first oriented being an entrepreneur was really when I launched which was 2013 so I didn't have something like collective right so I didn't know what I didn't know and there weren't a lot of I mean I don't really think the word entrepreneur back in 2001 was really being used it was more like you're starting your own business and I don't know like there just wasn't it wasn't cool it wasn't mainstream like it is now I was probably kind of a little bit I mean of course everyone's had small businesses forever but quite different to anything that I knew and I certainly did not have a support system at all So it just, it just took me a long time, right? (laughs) I can totally relate. And I know so many people will when you're just starting out too. And people start asking you, oh, can you do this? Can you do this? And you're like, oh yeah, I can do that. And, and it's like, you earn like a hundred dollars or $500. You're like, oh my God, I can't believe I just made money doing that. But then like you said, there's only so long you can kind of keep going in that way until you're like, right, I'm working all these hours. I'm not really bringing in that much. I don't really have something that is scalable. And like you said, you do you don't really know what your business is. Where did Collective Hub and the magazine come from? It came from being pissed off <laughs> and tired of my own BS. So, you know, I think this is a really great place to be. Well until 2012, I had three staff. So for 11 years I only had three staff. I just couldn't work out how to scale and I was really bored and comfortable. What I had been doing in that time was largely I was producing books, like custom publishing books for people, which was great. And I was totally self-taught accidentally by writing my first book, Happiness is in 2004 and I marketed that in a very different way. And so I found myself sort of accidentally 
in about 2005, kind of custom publishing books for people. And I actually published, I think, over 400, 400 books for different people. So I did a book for Toby's Estate Coffee. I did John Anderson, who's founded Kentucky. I did his book. So I basically, with my team of three, was working out how to help people write a book, how to publish the book, how to market the book. So I'd had some publishing and marketing experience. It was great in a way, but there's a lot of expectation from people. Like they're very, very excited when you're working on their book. But when it comes to marketing it, everyone wants to sell a million copies, be a bestseller. And so then kicks in a point where people get disappointed with you because if they only sell, I mean, a bestseller in Australia is 5,000. So if at most books, here's the clip. The thing, most books from most publishers sell about 300 copies. Well, I mean, one client, I did a did a cookbook. I did a deal with Energy Australia to buy 50,000 cookbooks as a like a surprise and delight because Energy Australia is an intangible, so they wanted something tangible to gift to their customers. So I was always thinking differently, but it was never going to be enough for people. And so by 2012, I was, I was making really good money, way more than I made with Collective Hub, let me tell you. <laughs> but I was surrounded by all these amazing kind of entrepreneurs, thought leaders, innovators. And I was just like, I kept looking at the media and reading the media and people would tell this like amazing story, like Emily Osmond's done this. And I'd be like, how did she do that? Why did she do that? What's the supply chain? How did she fund it? So I was left asking those same questions that I used to ask at school. And I just thought, well, I know how to do books. Why don't I just like put a whole lot of people into one format, a magazine? A magazine is a very, very, very different beast to a book. It's much more complex for many, many, many reasons. But the beautiful thing was I had some business acumen and naivety. And so I entered, which is very well documented now, a market of about five and a half thousand print magazines in Australia alone. Many of those you know, big guys, like at the time there was Bauer, um, Pacific Magazines, Newslife Media. Bauer had about 80 magazines in its stable. I mean, things have changed a lot since then. And here's a little old me with like not a lot of money at the time, no idea what I was doing in terms of Magland. And also with all the book stuff, we never really did bookshop distribution because we didn't do that very well. I focused more on special sales, like bulk sales to corporates. So the magazine land was very, very different. But and my initial idea with, with it, which not a lot of people know, was I was going to just sell it into a couple of corporates. To oh. Yeah, it was never meant to be a consumer player. It was like, oh, just do this amazing thing with all these amazing people. And then I ended up having a meeting with Gordon and Gotch, who was one of the distributors. And I cannot remember who the other distributor was at the time. There were only two. And they practically beat my door down going, oh my God. And this is, this is well before the magazine even came out, but I was showing them, this is my concept. This is the vision and nothing like Collective Hub existed for entrepreneurs at all. And so they were like beating my door down. I was like, this is nuts. They really want this business. And anyway, then within 18 months, the print mag was in 37 countries and, you know, it just exploded. It was crazy. I remember seeing it all unfold. Oh my gosh. I literally, I mean, it's, it's beautiful because, you know, I was sitting, I mean, I've written personally at that point, maybe 16 books or something. Like I've written a lot of books. Um, Happiness is, Cubicle Commando. Um, I'd written a series on learning to surf. I'd written a 
investing in property book. I've always written books depending on whatever I've been through in life, but no one much read them. Like I was pretty much an unknown and I literally launched the mag and I remember coming into the office the next day and I had over 600 emails, over 600 emails. Like overnight, I went from like obscurity to like Collective Hub was the hottest thing on everyone's lips and it's just nuts and I think I mean we can talk about why I think that was I mean I pretty much know now why (laughs) what do you think what was that combination of of the combination is this it's having an unwavering resolute self-belief and a really strong sense of purpose like and so this is where you actually remove yourself and this is where people get it wrong I always like I just want to create something like it was so it's still so ingrained in me. I want to create something for entrepreneurs that tells the story behind the story that is real, that is raw, that is relatable and attainable. And because I, well, you have the first issue there, but because I wrote, I mean, it's so beautiful what I did with that editor's letter because you could never know what was going to happen. But because I put it pretty much pen to paper in indelible ink that I had that I was doing this that this was my vision but I had no idea what I was doing and so when you do that and it certainly wasn't my intention at the time you have a you know unwavering self-belief you have a really big purpose to help other people you are self-deprecating and go I don't know what I'm doing people just fall in love and want to support it right and as people started buying it and sharing it they were like oh my god this is this is for me this is written for me you know so it was a beautiful platform because it enabled many voices to be heard that hadn't previously been heard and also much you know tools and inspiration for oh, that. <laughs> so practical it's just like full full of stories so you spoke about going from kind of unknown to suddenly you've got 600 emails people like you're hot the magazines are hot everyone wants to be part of it Oh, there's so many directions we could go with that. But I wanted to ask about imposter syndrome and if that came up for you at all, if you were like, oh my gosh, who, who the hell am I to be doing this? Or or you were like, you know what, I don't know, the fear around that, did that come up for you? No. The reason being, it was the weirdest situation. It didn't come up because, I mean, I need to go back like previous 11 years about how much work I did on myself personally. I I gave up drinking in 2004 because I realized I was using alcohol as a crutch to keep myself small. You know, I'd been through so much personally. I'd done so much, so much work on myself personally that I was really freaking strong by the time I launched the mag. And this is the you thing as well. Yeah. Mm. If you read Daring and Disruptive, which is the book that charted the first 18 months of the journey, I talk about this you know, across 208 pages about why it worked and everything I'd been through to get to that point. But the thing is, as well, I talk about, and people who are starting their own business, sometimes you kick yourself because when I launched it, it was so obvious. I'm like, of course, but you know, and you know this because you've read my books, but I talk about this, like it was 2007 that I went to Morocco and talked to my then 2SE one of my three staff, Mel, about starting a magazine. So that was 2007. I bought a book, How to Start a Magazine, a few years later. I think it was, I can't remember, 2009 or something. I registered a business called Messenger Magazines. Like there were a lot of signs, right? But I wasn't ready. So by the time I launched, I was freaking ready. And the thing about it is 
when you've had a business that really doesn't do much for nothing of great significance for me for 11 years, I was so (laughs) ready to go big, you know. And the funny thing is that, I mean, this is the funny thing. I just was like, because I never worked in media or magazines, I didn't know what that world was like. So I launched this thing and I'm just thinking, this is great. I'm supporting entrepreneurs. Well, the very next day, I am invited to every launch, every red carpet event. (laughs) And I remember I'm there with, like, I'm not kidding, Edwina McCann, who was the editor of Vogue, Kelly Hush, who was the editor of Harper's Bazaar, Justine Cullen, who was the editor of editor of Elle, and me. And we would turn up to all of these events, like the editors, and I was like, whoa, how did this happen? These people actually have been working their way up in the magazine world for 20 years. And here's little old me, I'm like, oh, hey, what do we do? Like hey the, the naivety was off the charts, but here's the thing about it. Not once did I feel better than or anything. I just was like, oh my gosh, help me. Hi, what do we do? Like, and I said that very publicly and I've written now how many books since I launched. Mm, They're all in front of me. Maybe nine, maybe 10. Like I started that whole journey in real time. I write every single day. I love that. And just for those that haven't read the books, like Lisa, it's like you're reading the books and she's published it just after these things have happened. It's just like we're jumping into your head and and hearing and seeing and being part of it all. It's just, yeah, oh, my gosh, so good. So here's the thing as well, because I have my own publishing company. Like if you, most authors who go through a big publisher, it's pretty much the manuscript is finished and it's probably 18 months to two years before that book is actually on the shelves. But with me, I write in real time every single day. I'm writing and it's being edited until the day we go to print. And the day we go to print, it lands two months later, so eight weeks later. So my content is as freaking fresh as it gets, which is also, you know, speaking of self-belief and confidence, like that's a pretty hairy thing to do, particularly when you get to my book, Risk and Resilience, which is when I nearly lost everything and we can get to that. I mean, I wrote that in real time. Let's talk about that, yeah. Well, it came out eight weeks after. I mean, I was still living that. And so a lot of people write books and then they'll do it, they'll publish it like 10 years later when it's... Retrospectively. Yeah, when it's not so raw and you're like, oh gosh, I feel great now. I write them when I'm... And I publish them and I put them out when I'm freaking in it. And I think that's when where people relate because they're like, oh my God, I feel like like you're me. (laughs) We're all going through it. Absolutely. Let's talk about that moment in time, that decision, it'd been leading up to it around what you called, you know, breaking Collective Hub to to save it and make it even better. And I know that you've come out the other side and it's like, oh my God, things are like pretty awesome now. But can you talk about leading up to that point? I know that you said you were kind of like hemorrhaging $100,000 a day or something like that. Yep. That's money going out. (laughs) The team is huge and not necessarily all the the right players on the team. You've said, you know, like there was some definite oversights by you maybe, but what, I guess for those listening and perhaps they have the dreams of having the big office, the team, and now you work remotely, your team are remote or you work at home, your team are remote. It's the smallest team ever, but the most profitable you've been. I'd love to hear like just taking us through the point it got to at Collective Hub and you're like, right, this isn't working anymore. We really need to make a change. What did that look like? And how did that feel? Horrible. And yeah, <laughs> so let me go 
back and try and explain that and and also you know 100% the responsibility around all of that lies with me like I'm 100% responsible that is what we need to be as founders and CEOs you know everything's our fault basically well yeah (laughs) it is I mean it's very easy to play the blame game or the victimize and all that kind of thing but ultimately at the end of the day I'm the one who made the decisions you know I'm the one who gets glory when things are good so also I need to take responsibility when things are bad so um I probably should tell a bit more about the happy stuff before we get that (laughs) so launch in 2013 you know, grows, grows, grows. You can read in the first three books, Daring and Disruptive kind of charts the first 18 months of Collective Hub's journey in real time, exactly how I made it happen, exactly how I went into a highly saturated industry and surpassed, you know, some of the greatest titles on the planet, ultimately, how Anna Wintour invited me to go meet with her in New York within the first 18 months. I was on Richard Branson's private island. I've since shared the stage with him three times. So lots of stuff happened. And then I also then wrote Money and Mindfulness, which is all about... Oh, I loved that one. Well, all about like why there's more currencies than cash and how to grow, you know, by collaborating, finding like-minded non-competing partners. So did all of that, wrote Life and Love, which is all about the rituals and the routines behind the scenes. So that was all like amazing, amazing, amazing. And for the first three, three and a half years after Collective Hub launched, like unbelievable, you know, just unbelievable things. Like Jamie Oliver came to Australia as the only person to be able to shoot him for a cover and we spent quite a lot of time together. Um, You know, John Cleese rang me one day, you know, from Monty Python and people were like, oh, John Cleese is on that, like so much stuff, right? And it was like, I think one of the hottest brands, not just in Australia, but around the world. I mean, the accolades we were getting, you know, everything was amazing, 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 until it wasn't. And what happened was, and this is a warning to anyone, because, you know, finally I'd stepped into the greatest manifestation of my dreams. I was like living the high life, on and off planes, whining and dining, not whining, but dining, (laughs) (laughs) mocktailing and dining with like the greatest planes on the planet. But I grew too fast and so I went from three staff to 34, which was three and a half million dollars in fixed salaries, you know, pretty quickly. An office that cost 350 grand went from, you know, a couple of million dollars turnover to millions and millions and millions. And as you rightly say, every day my CFO was like, we need, we need another hundred grand. And every night I got to a point where every night I was going home crying and I was like, how do I do this? You know? And then as a leader and a founder and a CEO, you need to front up the next day and be like, okay, let's go and find it. This inner resilience and self-belief to be like okay how do I keep this team motivated how do we keep going but I just grew too quickly I mean we grew across print digital and events and interestingly the print in hindsight the print and the events very profitable and actually very systemized and working very well the digital was completely out of control and the interesting thing about that is I learnt I call myself like a brand architect I learnt the print intrinsically so I knew exactly how that worked I knew exactly the supply chain distribution I knew exactly every piece of data and dollar figure surrounding that so I was great with that and events my background was events so oh my god your events so that was all yeah so they're amazing amazing what happened was stupidly I thought you know we ah we need to go online and so 
we were publishing sort of eight articles or so a day online and I was paying writers maybe three to five hundred dollars an article these were all freelance writers so these weren't even part of my 34 staff but we just weren't getting the advertising revenue to sustain that and my own fault I relinquished control and I made a couple of wrong hires and I took my eye off the ball and you know let them run that and that is my fault 100% because I should have been more intimate with the data and I should have understood more about what was going on so it's interesting in hindsight it wasn't the print mag at all that nearly sunk us in fact that was growing you know exponentially every single month we were you know climbing the ranks in NewsLink and WH Smith and you know getting really really it was I mean it's doing really well it was the digital and it was me not understanding the mechanics of that and it wasn't until I kind of got out of it all and was like ah oh, and really analyzed all the data and the mistakes but I grew too quickly and I, I hired people on way too much money I didn't have the right systems and processes in place. So there was a lot of duplication and it wasn't efficient. So, yeah, so I did. I broke it all, <laughs> which was very excruciatingly hard, like, and some of the greatest lessons. And I would say to anyone, be unafraid to, as my book title of Risk and Resilience, which is my rawest book to date, I think I wrote 150,000 words or something in real time. It came down to 30,000 words or so in the end. But it is freaking gritty and I talk about every figure, every mistake I made, exactly what not to do. And, yeah, the subtitle, Break It to Remake It. I just knew that if my purpose is to ignite human potential and to be an entrepreneur for entrepreneurs, living my life out loud, showing that anything's possible, I couldn't keep going like I was going or I would have sunk. The brand and I was like I owed it to a community like very low community of over four million people across platform to actually go for me pull my head in work out what the hell I did wrong and work out how to make it better out the other side so that's what I've been doing and like now we have a stronger stronger brand I mean well you've been watching probably lately I, I had to take some time and space but you know I've launched mm-hmm. podcast this year we're bringing out 37 print products like we're um, creating lots of digital masterclasses like I'm doing a lot of stuff which I just feel happier more sustained more on purpose than ever now so yeah it's good I love how you did do it publicly you're like right you know there's some stuff that's not really working right now. This is what's not working. This is what I'm going to do about it. Because obviously you had such a huge following. And actually, I think you spoke about this in one of your books, how you realized very quickly some of the people that were buddy-buddy with you just disappeared. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. People who like, I don't know, there's something really sexy about, I don't know what it is, about a magazine. Like, it's so funny. Like, even though our um, digital numbers were actually much bigger than the print mag in terms of circulation and readership and things but people always 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 if we were doing a story on them wanted to be in the print mag so yeah there were a lot of sucky people who just were like (laughs) my friend because they wanted a great story and um and it's interesting because you know some of those disappeared and then you know I brought out because I couldn't let it die I brought out two more issues of the mag after it killed it off and it was so funny how I watched some people disappear and then when I brought a couple of issues back they were like oh hey hello (laughs) (laughs) was it a battle with your ego at all to be like right we're actually 
you know, we're making this massive change, we're breaking it? There wasn't, there wasn't, because luckily for me, I think this is where a lot of people get it wrong and where I could have got it wrong. Yeah, it was hard. I mean, it took me about 18 months to really decide to let the print go and to dismantle the office. But then that was my ego, 100%. But when I really looked at it and I was like, what am I here to do? This is not about me. This is about serving others. This is about creating extraordinary content to you know, inspire and educate other people. Is this the best use of me at the moment? No, it's not. Because if I'm lying on the bathroom floor and I'm hemorrhaging cash, <laughs> hemorrhaging tears and hemorrhaging cash, then I can't serve. And so I was like, is my identity wrapped up in this, you know, print, physical, tangible print magazine that's very sexy and seeing them sitting behind you now, I'm like, oh, my baby. <laughs> but I was like, no. And also the thing is I had tasted in a very big way success and growth and I was like, I know I can do this again. And so it was the hardest but the most sensible decision and I knew that at the time. And, yes, I did do it very publicly. And the reason is this. I always wear my heart on my sleeve. I always hope I'm as, as authentic as I possibly can be. If anyone asks me any question about money or figures or how or why, I will always tell people. The only thing that's off limits is I don't talk at length about my relationship because I'm like, I have one thing sacred. I mean, I skirt around it, but I'm like, you've got to have one thing sacred when everything else in my life I share. My point around that was I've seen a lot of people since close businesses, but it's almost like there's a quick thing on Instagram or something like, oh, hey, but they don't really explain it. And I was like, holy. I always want to know when I see that. I'm like, why? Tell us about it. It's not even that because often it's not other people's business so much. But I was like, I feel like when we actually tell something exactly how it is, it's very cathartic. It releases you from any fear or any skepticism or anyone, you know, you own your story then. And I was like, I'm happy to say I messed up. I buggered this up. I took my eye off the ball. This is what's happened as a result. And, you know, then it's done. And the thing is, there was no negative media. There was no nothing because I owned the story. I was like, I take responsibility. Whereas when some people are like, oh, you sort of hear this, someone went into liquidation or went bankrupt or something and you kind of hear a bit, but then it's like business as usual. And I'm like, no, but just say it. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. And I'm, and I'm very, very, very proud. Whilst sadly, you know, I had to make some people redundant, which was hideous and I'd never had to do that in my entire business life for 17 years. But, you know, I could have, I don't even know what these things are, but I could have, I'm sure, filed for bankruptcy or got into liquidation or whatever. But I was like, it's just not in my nature. I'm like, no, I'm going to fight. I'm going to take responsibility. I'm going to wind out of this in the best way possible. I'm going to pay every single cent owed. And I did. And so I think, you know, I feel good. I, there's nothing I feel bad about. There's nothing I can't put my head on the pillow at night and go, I did the best I could do. I owned it and I did it. And now I'm so much stronger. So <laughs> so this leads in quite well. I asked some of my community, I said, I've got Lisa coming on the podcast. And they gave me a couple of questions that they would love to hear. And one of them is, so Sarah asked, I'd love to know how many people are on your team now, Lisa, and um, also the ratio of employees to contractors. 
There are probably about 17 or so on a like regular daily basis, zero employees now, all contractors. Having said that, I think I'm about to take on my first employee again. <laughs> it's funny, for, um, yeah, for 17 years, I mean, I always had employees, but I was just, you know, I think I was just like, I just need time and space and ability. there's something beautiful about being able to slide in and out of projects as well and very project by project. Like even though I'm bringing out 37 print products this year, they're all projects. So, you know, I have my art director, my sub-editor, my editor, my who else, you know, my Jody, who looks after my logistics and distribution. Like there's a whole team of people that work on all of those. But the beauty about project work is if I wanted at the moment, I could take off and just be like, yeah, because, you know, I can record my podcast in advance. You can kind of backload things. I can, you know, like of those 37 print products, 12 are already printed or at the printers. So we've like, you know, and we're releasing now one a week one every two weeks for the rest wow. of this year yeah i can't so, wait to see i'll tell you what's interesting is this when collective hub was at its height i only started doing in the first year i did five issues of the mag second year i did i think 12 then i did 12 then i dropped back to six and then six so i was only doing either six or five six or 12 issues of the mag a year right and i was doing generally one or two books and kind of one diary so there wasn't that much output right now I'm doing 37 print products I've got six digital master classes four of which are up to are coming shortly we're doing like you know now my podcast I'm um, an ambassador for HP I've just done work with Microsoft like I do a lot of big corporate campaigns now when it's not COVID I'm on and off a stage at least once a week last week I did five speaking gigs from my um, home office via Zoom and Microsoft Teams so my output now is like enormous compared to when I had 34 full-time staff, our revenue this fin year will exceed what it was when Collective Hub was at its peak. And certainly our profitability will, you know, be much better because we have the efficiencies now. Having said that, I, <laughs> you know, I lost close to $3 million of my own money. The reason I had that was I had invested in property prior to launching Collective Hub and I sold two properties to use as bridging finance. I remember reading it. Yeah, never got that. That was $1.3 million in profit that I made and, and I put it all into the business. Even though, you know, the business is doing well now, it's still not even remotely close and it probably won't be five years to paying me back. And there are two ways to look at that. You know, some people are like, oh my God, hideous. How do you cope? I'm like, I cope just fine because I've never cared about money for money's sake. I care about money to buy freedom and choice. And so if I was, you know, I think we all have a choice to be a victim or to be like, wow, that was an expensive lesson. Thank you, big fat MBA in life <laughs> for like draining me of every cent I had. But my gosh, did Collective Hub the brand set me up for life? Absolutely. You know, did it give me the confidence and the mindset and the resilience piece? Absolutely. There's no amount of money in the world. I don't care. I just don't care. I don't care. I mean, sometimes sometimes things hurt. I'm like, oh, that was a chunk of change. But at the end of the day, it's just like money's just, it's just a currency. There are many other currencies as I talk about in Money and Mindfulness. <laughs> yeah. 
Another question, Lisa. So last last few questions. This one was from Melanie and I loved it. She said, who's been a key mentor of yours in growing your brand? And what was the best advice that you you were given by this mentor? Great question, Melanie. I don't have a mentor. I have a lot of people that I ask advice from depending on the situation that I find myself in at any given time. I think that's really important when something is at the scale that my businesses are now at or in life in general because there are a few people who've experienced the breadth of what I've experienced in business having had businesses for 19 years. So so if I want to ask someone about investment or advisory boards or things like that, I might ask my friend Kathy Reed, who she's been on my podcast recently. She grew a billion dollar business from nothing, completely self-made. She's brilliant at all the rigor around, you know, having a board, having investment, all that kind of thing. The other end of the spectrum, if I'm having a complete meltdown and I need to ground myself, I have a guy called Raj who lives in India in a commune, pretty much a cult. I've talked about him. <laughs> I'll do a call with him and I'll be like, hey, Raj, having a meltdown. And he'll be like, it's okay, my friend. You know, if it's something about how to work out something technical around, you know, one of my digital platforms, then, you know, I have completely different people that I go to. If it's mindset, again, different people. So I really, have a whole breadth of people and most of them, you know, I will be inviting onto my podcast. Yeah. What's interesting about that, I don't know what your strategy's been, Emily, but I, anyway, people can listen to the first episode of Hear Me Roll, my podcast to hear why I did it because for the longest time I was like, no, I'm not doing it. We've interviewed so many amazing people in the mag. I didn't catch any of them audibly. Most of the interviews I didn't do myself. Am I even a good interview? Like I just was like, look, why? And then I was like, okay, I'm going to do it my way. I'm going to invite my inner circle, the people that I trust, essentially my mentors and the people that I reach out to, and they're the people that I'm going to have on. And so for that reason, it's actually been delicious and beautiful because I didn't kind of curtail to, again, societal expectations about this is who you should have. I just had the so far having the people that I know really well who help me through life so yeah for that reason I'm loving it oh I love it Lisa I, I can't believe the time is flowing but I did want to touch on mental health I love it something that you've spoken about in your books you're very open about and you, you said you've done a lot of work on it is it still something that comes up from you and is it something that you have I guess daily practices around thank you it comes up every day in fact last night I had a very uncool meltdown and you know and <laughs> no but no but it's not it's just like I use that as an opportunity to go yuck that was like the worst version of me and I was rude to my partner and my fiance and you know and so I think every single day you know we need to capture ourselves and kind of use it as an opportunity to grow and I feel like we can never get complacent just because I've done a lot of work on myself in the past and written a lot of books about it it doesn't make me like I'm not positioned as a guru or someone who has it all together I mean every single day I need to work on it and try and better myself and I still have triggers that I really should know better by now and so I do beat myself up when I you know have a meltdown and I'm rude or I'm you know quick tempered or whatever else because really by now I do have rituals and routines to know better, <laughs> which are meditate, journal, go for a run, 
you know, a myriad of other things. So there's really no excuse. So there you go. Again, taking responsibility. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I think the fact that it, 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 it's something that probably, yeah, it's a continuous thing to work on and to just get better and better at managing. It really is. I mean, I'm due for what I would say is, in my words, another deep dive. And deep diving for me is pretty severe. <laughs> Pretty, pretty intense. <laughs> like I will, when I do that, which I've done many times in my life, I'll do something like go on an eight-day retreat. It's not a retreat. It generally involves like a lot of screaming, bashing mattresses with baseball bats, <laughs> like, um, you know, going back into like rebirthing and like all sorts yeah. of like really out there crazy cathartic stuff and it's horrible and I don't like it when I'm in it and you kind of go oh surely I've worked through all of this by now yeah so I fight going into things like that but when I come out the other side of those as painful as they are I come out like joy and calm and like because it's all gone it's all out of me you know I think in western society certainly where can you go to just scream? Like unless you go stand on the edge of a cliff and like ah, to the waves or you drive in your car with like, you know, very loud music. Like where can we express our anger? And I think, you know, that's why so much of society gets sick. We keep it inside. And so sometimes these cathartic things, even though to the external world sound pretty wacky and kooky, like they're just, I don't know, they just let it out. <laughs> And you come back and you're like, I am cleansed. <laughs> <laughs> Ready to go again. Final question, Lisa. This was from Bavna and she said, what do you want to be remembered for when you're gone? Great question. For me, it's all about living my life out loud, showing that anything's possible. So that is how I live my life every day, keeping myself accountable. It's actually a beautiful way to live because it pushes me to do things beyond my comfort zone, to use myself as a conduit to show to people that anything is possible. So I purposely, be it, you know, something physical, mental, business-wise, I'm purposely always putting myself into counterintuitive situations that push me beyond my comfort zone so that I can show other people it's possible. You can do whatever it is. So I want to be remembered for someone who's, kind someone who can lead the way and show people that it's okay to you know have a go it's okay to not know what you're doing and you know just step a little bit beyond what you thought was possible and prove that you can truly step into the biggest best version of you so yeah I want people to be like wow she really she really lived she really showed us how to live I think she was really happy she was fun she was kind she gave back I mean that's yeah I'm here cliche cliche in a way but truly I feel like I'm here to serve and I am the happiest version of me when I'm not caught up in my ego or what I need and I'm actually serving truly oh Lisa thank you so much thank you for the work that you do and being such a shining example for so many of us and um, thank you so much for your time today I've loved loved chatting with you thank you for having me <laughs> Pleasure. 
thank you for listening to The Emily Osmond Show, brought to you by my Instagram freebies, which you'll find at emilyosmond.com forward slash free. So please take a few seconds to leave me a review, subscribe so that you don't miss an episode, and be sure to take a screenshot of this podcast, upload it to your social media, and tag me at Emily Osmond so I can give you a shout out too. Until next time, remember connection over perfection. You've got this and we'll speak soon.